Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 30. And I have a feeling that this week is going to be a longer podcast than normal. I'll try to keep it succinct as possible, but I guess some weeks you've got more to say than other weeks. This week we'll pick up in Proverbs 29, is where we left off last week. And we'll work through Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then we'll start to get a little bit into the book of Isaiah. So we begin this week in Proverbs 30. These last two chapters of Proverbs, chapters 30 and 31, are from two other wise men named Augur and Lemuel. And the chapter is divided into two main sections. The first half is theological, verses 2 through 9 of chapter 30. Augur writes first as one who does not know God, but who yearns to know him. And in Job-like language, he described himself as being deficient in the knowledge of the things of God. He didn't want God to give him more than he needed because then he would tend to become more independent of God. The rest of chapter 30 is practical, verses 10 through 33. And this section, he applies some of the things written earlier. He focuses on things that are arrogant, slandered, dishonoring parents, oppressing the poor. In verses 15 to 17, the focus is on cravings that are never satisfied. Instead, we should seek after things which fully satisfy. In this case, we would be referencing wisdom. The next section, verses 18 to 20, with some general observations about things that amazed him. Verses 21 to 23, he warns about those who take advantage of others. In verses 24 to 31, um, to the end of the chapter, Augur adds wise animals and their habits as measures of intelligence and prudence. You know, the last words of the chapter are directed personally to the reader. The appeal is quite direct, you might say. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, then now is the time to stop. That's the advice of Augur. The intent of this concluding advice is to strive for peace and harmony through humility and righteousness. And so that's a little bit of his wisdom as you read. Now you get to chapter 31 of Proverbs is the wisdom of Lemuel. And the first nine verses of chapter 31 are the counsel that is given to a king. A king is to be wise and prudent in all his actions. Therefore, a counsel about women is given in verses 2 and 3. And then a warning about drunkenness in verses 4 through 7. And then the need to be sensitive to help the afflicted in verses 8 through 9. Now, the rest of chapter 31 is probably the better-known part of Proverbs. We often title this the virtuous woman or the Proverbs 31 woman. What you might not know about this section, verses 10 through 31, is that it's an acrostic, like many of the Psalms that we talked about. The first verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So that means that this section was composed so that it could be memorized easily. And most of the verses describe uh, this virtuous woman um, she was very keen. She was, uh, uh, she was diligent. She was a hard worker in the care of her household. Uh, her husband trusts in her and is proud of her. She helps the needy neighbors. Her character traits are strength, dignity, optimism, wisdom, kindness. Um, but the best praise comes from those who know the woman best, her children and her husband. And the standards used to measure the woman are not charm and beauty, but this, a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And the book of Proverbs could not end on a higher note than that. Well, that finishes up the book of Proverbs, and we continue with the writings of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're moving from Proverbs to pessimism, we might say. And here are a few things to think about when reading the book of Ecclesiastes. First of all, you will notice the overly pessimistic tone of the book. Keywords like vanity and under the sun show up to demonstrate the author's pessimism. Uh, 
Second, the book is making a comparison between the basic worldviews of happiness in life apart from God compared to happiness in life with God. Um, If your worldview is not correct, then you will be pessimistic as you seek to find anything that will fulfill your heart's desires apart from God. Third, the book is supremely relevant to our current culture wherein people are seeking after the meaning of life, but they are not including God as part of the equation. This is our opportunity to show them what they are missing. Fourth, ultimately the book is about satisfaction or contentment in God alone. He's the only one that can give it. He's the only one who can bring us lasting uh, satisfaction in life. He's the only one who can bring our lives meaning. And fifth, did you know that Jewish leaders originally wanted to keep Ecclesiastes, along with four other books, out of the Old Testament canon of Scripture, namely because it was so pessimistic and depressing? But You must look at what Solomon is trying to do, and you'll understand the importance of the book. Here's the wisest man in the world saying, I've tried it all. I've tried it all, and it's all pointless. Fear God and keep his commandments, Solomon said. That's the only thing that will bring satisfaction and contentment. Here's the wisest man in all the world. He has observed life, tried to do life, tried to get ahead in life, all apart from God. And at the end of the book, he says it was all pointless. Now, if the wisest man in the world tells us these things, then why are we repeating his mistakes time and time again? Wouldn't it be much better for us to learn from his example? I think it would. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 opens with a poem, verses 1 through 11. This poem is a reflection, and it's a reflection on this thought. Apart from God, our labor or work in this world is vain. That's his thought. He gives examples to us from the sun, the earth, the wind, the rivers. All these things are in a constant cycle from which there is no escape. They are caught in a rut. So if the basic elements of the world have nothing to show for their labor, then what hope do human beings have? What a way to start the book, right? (laughs) You can see the pessimism coming out right away. The next section in verse uh, chapter 12 of, of, of verse 1 and continues through chapter 2, this section Solomon is searching for meaning in life. After the early conclusion that people gain nothing from all the work in which they labor, Solomon sets out to see if truly it is all indeed vanity and futile. He looks at several different ways of living life. First, he uses the wisdom he had to work had acquired intellectually to understand the meaning of life. That doesn't work. Next, he tried pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure. That doesn't work. Then he tries wisdom in contrast to folly. But again, that doesn't work. And then lastly, he tries gathering wealth, and that fails miserably as well. The last few verses of, of chapter 12 form Solomon's conclusions. He tells us to thank God for what we are given and enjoy those gifts to the glory of God, because apart from God, there can be no true enjoyment of blessings or enrichment of life. It is good to have things that money can buy, provided you don't lose the things that money can buy, someone aptly stated. The next section of Ecclesiastes is probably a more familiar one to many. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, this passage is often quoted at funerals, at weddings, and other festive occasions. And Solomon starts off immediately reminding us that for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. And as you read through um, this section here in chapter 3, you'll discover God is sovereign over all things. People cannot completely discover either the timing or the patterns that reflect God's purposes and work in this world, nor can they see how God's creation coheres together. Any attempt to try to fully understand God's purposes or why he does what he does will leave a person frustrated. But that's the point. Solomon sees this frustration as one mechanism that can draw people to God and a life centered in him. Actually, 
there is a definite orderliness to the way that God does things. We know this to be true. He is a precise God, absolute in his authority over space and time. He puts everything in its own place and own time. The rhythms of creation testify to this orderliness of our creator. And so Solomon points to the section, his point to the section is clear at the close of verse 15. God controls the times while we are subject to the times. We need to learn to rest in his sovereignty, but we're also to make the best use of the time that God has given to us. The next section of Ecclesiastes is 3, 16 through 4, verse 6. The thought in these verses is how God's people should work in a society filled with wickedness, envy, and oppression. Wow, that sounds like a relevant sermon for our day today. Solomon made three observations in this section. First, he said that he observed wickedness in the place of justice. So instead of justice prevailing, wickedness was given rule to the day. Second, second Solomon said he saw all the oppressions that are practiced. And he was so flabbergasted with it all that he said that the dead are better off than these people who are alive because the dead can't watch what is being done. Very depressing part but very true. Third, Solomon observed all the toil and work that comes from a person's envy. Envy is a powerful motivator. So what's his conclusion? We can work with quietness, with peace of mind, trusting our heavenly father will provide us, uh, will provide us our food, our drink, our clothing, our housing, you know, in a desert of wickedness, of ruthless competition, the rat race, we can experience an oasis of joy and tranquility when we don't follow the crowd in working to pile up possessions. Enjoy your work with quietness, Solomon says, and your heavenly father will provide your every need. The next section is chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, and this section is about working together. You know, our culture is often marked by rugged individualism. This selfish trait also tends to seep into the church. But Christians cannot be individualists because we are members of a community, of the body of Christ. And Solomon illustrates his point by describing a person who is insatiable with work and getting ahead in life. And this person finally comes to a point and says, what am I doing all this for? Because he has no one. He is completely alone in this life. And with this story, Solomon is reminding us that there is a limit to where wisdom will get us in this life. Certainly, he warns against doing it alone. And we ought to cooperate with others. But we ought to realize that this earthly life will come to an end. And then our greatest accomplishments will soon long be forgotten. The realization of the brevity of our legacy on this earth should keep us humble, reminding us that our identity in this life and the life to come is wrapped up in the name of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, worshiping in God's house is the subject of the next section, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And against this background, Solomon issues a series of commands about their conduct in the worshiping God in his temple. Solomon says that the fear of God is the beginning of reverent worship. Fearing God does not mean we should be terrified or afraid of him. It means that we revere him and that we stand in all of him, that we come into his presence with reverence. The next section, chapter 5, verses 8 through 20, is about the love of money. And in all times and places, people seem to be interested in accumulating wealth, whether it's ancient Israel or our modern world today. The desire to accumulate wealth is definitely nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. The point that Solomon will make in these verses is simple. Enjoying God's daily gifts that he gives you and stop pursuing after wealth. In chapter 6, Solomon takes us to the three of life's mysteries. We falsely believe that in order for life to be satisfying, it has to make sense. When it doesn't make sense, we get frustrated and we get irritated. If people do not see a purpose in life, especially when they go through deep suffering, they start to question God. They wonder if life is worth living. 
But what we really need to learn is to be comfortable with the fact that there are some things that just won't make sense to us. The first mystery, Solomon says, is riches without enjoyment. It's a tragedy when you have all the resources for satisfying life, but are not able to enjoy them for one reason or another. The second mystery is labor without satisfaction. Solomon says that it's better to have a little and really enjoy it than to dream about much and never attain it. The third mystery is questions without answers. We need to know our limits, and one of our limits is that we do not have the wisdom to out-talk God. No matter what we say, telling God that he ought to do this or shouldn't do this or do this or do that, our words will never change his wise plan for ruling the universe. In the next two chapters, chapter 7 and 8, Solomon will deal with the main theme of wisdom and how we use it each day. The word wisdom will be used some 14 times in the next two chapters, and while wisdom cannot solve every problem or answer every question. Solomon says it's better to follow wisdom than to follow the fool. And in chapter 7, Solomon makes a series of better-than comparisons. Solomon is teaching us how to exercise discernment in choosing the way we live. Better is a key word in this chapter. It's used at least 11 times by Solomon. Essentially, what Solomon is getting at is that better things come to the person or come to the life of a person who follows God's wisdom. Then you get to chapter 8. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, Solomon discusses the qualities of wisdom and those who follow it. Um, we might best term this chapter qualities of a good leader. He has a good disposition. He has keen judgment. He has a discreet mouth. He has a humble spirit. While these things are positive, Solomon also leaves us with two warnings for those who would lead. And he says this, first, don't take advantage of those who you lead. And second, if you take advantage of those who you lead, you're going to hurt yourself more than you're going to hurt them. In the next section, chapter 8, verses 10 through 17, Solomon addressed the topic of failed justice. You know, we can relate to Solomon's observations because many times crimes are never prosecuted. Other crimes are prosecuted, but smart lawyers can get their clients off the hook. And sometimes other sentences are delayed time after time, often on a technicality or often just on the fact that they don't have time to get to it. And in spite of injustice that they see in the world, in spite of the troubling questions they cannot answer, wise people will seek to enjoy themselves in the life that God gives them. In other words, Solomon warned us against trying to be over-wise. Embracing joy frees Solomon to let God be God, whose trademark is work that exceeds our comprehension or our understanding. Now, in chapters 9, uh, verses 1 through 12, Solomon tells us the simple fact to enjoy life. I think the key here, though, that Solomon's getting out is balance. Solomon's emphasis is on the fact that a righteous person could not... Uh, be more certain of his or her earthly future than a wicked person could. Verse 7 says it well. It says, So go ahead, eat your food with joy, and drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. This encouraging word does not contradict the fact that we are stewards of all God entrusts to us. However, it should help us to realize that it's not sinful to take pleasure in what God has given to us, even some of those luxuries. We need to balance gratefulness and generosity, retaining some things and giving away other things. This balance is not easy, but it truly is important. The next section, chapter 9, verse 13 through chapter 10, verse 20, Solomon says that the wise cannot be more sure of his or her earthly future than the fool can. You know, wisdom doesn't guarantee a good job or a prosperous future. Besides, just a little folly or foolish living can decrease the value of living, just like a little folly or one little foolish action can ruin uh, your life, your career. Therefore, since a little folly can do a lot of damage, he says, use wisdom in your daily living and use wisdom in your daily talk. 
And that's the overarching point he's trying to make. The easiest way to remember what Solomon has taught is by remembering the three animals in this text. Yes, I said that right, the three animals, flies, snakes, and birds. All are small and are apparently insignificant creatures, but each has potential for harm. And just like these little animals, a little folly can do a lot of harm. And this is all the more reason for us to use our God-given wisdom, insight, and skill to navigate our way through life, both with our actions and with our words. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, Solomon teaches us to be wise in our behavior because we are uncertain of our future. The ignorance of the future should lead us to work more diligently, not to despair or complain about it. Don't wait until conditions are perfect before going to work. Labor diligently, even though conditions might not be perfect. Man, this sounds like Solomon is talking about living in 2020 with COVID restrictions and all the conditions that makes working more difficult. But he says, since the future is in God's hands, the wise person proceeds with his work, diligently hoping his efforts will yield fruit as they normally do. Now, this final section of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, verse 7, through the end of the book, is a reminder about forgetfulness. We need to live joyfully, but we must remember to live responsibly. Prosperity can make us forget God, and when our refrigerators and houses and garages are full with all kinds of things, and we have a good nest egg for a rainy day and a decent retirement, it's easy to forget God. And when God brought Israel into the prosperity of the promised land, he warned them specifically not to forget him. Look it up. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You know, old age will be upon us all before we know it. And we're told to remember the Lord and follow his ways while we are young. That will create that maturity process. This is the advice of Solomon. How is this done? Well, Solomon boils it all down to two ways at the very end of the book. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. These two commands are what will bring satisfaction, contentment, and peace in your life. So while Ecclesiastes may have started out on a somber note, it truly ends on a powerful affirmation that satisfaction in life comes from a relationship with God. That's the only way we'll find satisfaction. Now we move on to another one of Solomon's books, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. And while Ecclesiastes was likely written later in Solomon's life, the Song of Solomon was written when he was much younger and when he had eyes for only one woman. Now a few things about Song of Solomon. First, many people like to interpret the book allegorically as Christ's love for the church rather than what it is, a love poem. Second, tradition says that Jewish men were not to read the book until they were 30 years old. Now, I don't know how true that tradition really is, but it is a tradition. Third, the book is a love poem that describes a man's relationship with his wife, which is a God-given right and a God-given privilege. Now, because of time, I'm going to give you a paragraph or two overview of the book or summary of the book. All right. So it seems that God's primary reason for this book was to give us the right picture of of what love should look like between a man and a woman. The world is all too eager to give us a picture of what love should look like, but in this book we find God's picture, wherein a husband and wife are enjoying their marriage mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. All ways that God intended the day that he created man and woman. And this is what the book teaches us. In addition to this, we can say that the love relationship between a man and a woman, as depicted in Song of Solomon, is a great illustration of the love relationship that God has for Israel or the love that Christ has for his church. You know, human life finds its highest fulfillment in the love of a man and a woman. Spiritual life finds its highest fulfillment in the love of a human being 
and God. Jesus Christ makes the fulfillment of love on both human and spiritual levels possible. He manifested God's love to us. Consequently, we love him and we can love one another as a result. Now, I know that was short and sweet and to the point, but we've got a larger section to start with as we start the prophetic section with the book of Isaiah, which is the next Bible book that we come to. So let's take a minute and talk about some things you need to pay attention to in Isaiah. Actually, let me explain first before we get to Isaiah uh, this prophetic section so you understand how to read it well. So from now, the book of Isaiah all the way to Malachi, we're going to talk about prophets and the prophetic section. So let me give you a couple things about this section in general, and then we'll start talking about Isaiah. First, not every prophet in Scripture wrote a book. I guess that's obvious, right? People like Elijah and Elisha don't have books, uh, books they wrote, but there is material about their ministries and the kings and what they did. Second, most, and, and hear me when I say most, most prophets are not foretellers of future events through dreams and visions. Most prophets in Scripture were foretellers or preachers of God's already revealed law. When we come across prophets in Scripture, most of the time they're uh, reminding, encouraging, or sometimes even reprimanding Israel for not following the law and God's commands. Now, there are a few prophets whose ministries are connected to future events on a more significant scale than others. Third, our English Bibles divide the major prophets, um, excuse me, divide the prophets in general up into two sections, major prophets and minor prophets. Now, minor prophets are not minor because their message is not important or significant. They're simply categorized this way because of the size of their book. They're smaller in nature. This is compared to um, major prophets, three big ones like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And these three combined books make up roughly one-sixth of the entire Bible. Can you imagine that? Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they make up one-sixth of the entire Bible. That's the three important books and three heavy and weighty books. Fourth, most of the time, the writing prophets date their ministries and lives so we can place them into Israel's history. These prophets covered a time period of roughly 400 years 850 B.C. to roughly 400 B.C. Fifth, the prophets frequently refer to the land of Israel in their messages. The condition of the land was a visible reminder of Israel's spiritual condition. Obedience to the law of God brought prosperity from God's hand, while disobedience brought discipline on the land in the form of drought, famine, and oftentimes plagues. So with that past us, let's talk about Isaiah because we only have a few minutes left. Just a few things to look for when reading through this book. First, Isaiah lived and ministered in Jerusalem, where he was likely the court prophet. So he prophesied to the kingdom of Judah. Second, Isaiah began his reign in the year that King Uzziah died, 740 B.C., and continued his reign until King Manasseh. So therefore, he ministered for almost 50 years. That's a long time. And he would have ministered when the northern tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Fourth, the book is all about Israel, her past, her present, and her future. That's the focus. Fifth, and what probably Isaiah is best known for, um, is he is among the greatest revealers of truth concerning the person, work, and kingdom of the coming Messiah. There are a lot of messianic prophecies concerning the king and his kingdom in Isaiah. This is why the book of Matthew quotes from Isaiah extensively, because Matthew wanted to prove that Jesus was the king, and there's no better text to get um, proof text from than to go back to Isaiah. Now, there's much more I'd love to talk about 
with Isaiah and, and some of the general things, but we got to get into the actual chapters before our time is gone. So chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah form the book's introduction. In chapter 1, the present situation of the nation of Israel in the second half of the 8th century is that she was guilty of forsaking her God, and as a result, she had become broken and desolate. God's indictment of his people is threefold. He indicts them on counts of rebellion, of insincere worship, and injustice. That's in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Isaiah is looking forward to the day when God's kingdom would rule over all the other nations, when rebellion is replaced with obedience or walking in his paths, when insincere worship is replaced with a sincere desire to go to the house of the Lord, when injustice is replaced with God judging between the nations. Those days of peace and obedience will have to be preceded by judgment that is to come upon the nation of Israel because of God's indictment on her. Now, chapter 3 is specific about judgment that will descend on Jerusalem herself and her leadership. And the emphasis in this chapter seems to be on the lack of qualified leaders and the consequent collapse of society that would result because God's people don't put their trust in Him. You know, God's peculiar gift, we might say, for the nation of Israel was her inspired leaders. But right now, or excuse me, but now because of what she has done in Isaiah here, they're going to be removed. Now, chapter 4 of Isaiah leaves us with a message of hope. Even though all of this will fall on Israel, Isaiah reminded the people of God, Isaiah reminded God's people of the ultimate plan. You know, war has always resulted in the decimation of the male population. So many men, chapter 4, verse 1 there, would die in Israel, and women would be desperate for male companionship and support. And this judgment happens during the captivities of the northern and southern kingdoms. But the phrase, that day, also looks forward to the day of the greatest judgment, and we know that as the tribulation period. However, the good news and the message of hope that he leaves us with is in that day of trouble would end with the coming of the branch of the Lord. And that's a messianic title describing Israel's future king, one who would come through the line of David. Now, our time is gone. So we have to stop. That's kind of beginning to get into the book of Isaiah. Next week, we'll pick up with chapter 5 of Isaiah. Again, if you have any questions, email those questions to Bible reading at LNBC. I'll get it right at lnbc.org. And I will talk with you all next time.